Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, two high-profile disqualifications by the Conservative Party, making the election about the issues that matter, and the latest on vaccine passports. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show, Friday, August 13th, 2021. Friday the 13th, we'll try not to get too spooky on you. The (laughs) prospects of a Justin Trudeau majority government might be terrifying enough as we head into what is supposed to be an election starting on Sunday. So uh, we've been talking about this, I know, and the horse race stuff can get a bit boring, but it seems like now we know pretty definitively that the election is going to be called on Sunday and all of the politicians will be off to the races with an election to be held on September 20th. And we've got some great stuff planned at True North on how we're going to cover that election. Uh, You may remember I had a bit of a rough go in 2019 following around the Liberal campaign bus. We're not going to do a repeat of that, but we are going to do lots of on-the-ground coverage, talking about the stories the mainstream media is ignoring or is butchering. And that's going to be something where, I I mean, i got to get packed. I'm headed to Ottawa on Sunday for the election call. And we've got at True North Sunday evening an election kickoff show, which you won't want to miss. That'll be lots of fun. My friend and colleague Candace Malcolm is going to be hosting that. But there's already lots of news being made by it. Now, if you look around, a lot of ridings do not have candidates still in the Liberals, the Conservatives. Now, I mean, the Liberals have known this is coming. They've known their plan, so they've got no excuse to be so disorganized. But even conservatives are trying to scramble to get candidates nominated. And even once they're nominated, that is not a guarantee that they're going to remain on the ballot. I want to talk about a couple of examples here that are really raising a lot of concerns from conservatives in Canada. One is a story I broke just last night. Pierre Lemieux, who was formerly the three-term MP for Glengarry Prescott Russell, applied to run again. In this upcoming election in January, he submitted his nomination paperwork. He said, listen, I've represented this riding three times. I want another go at it. And only last week, the party told him, no, you cannot run. They, they rejected his application seven months after he put it in and told him no. And now they've appointed someone. I don't even know who it is. It's not on their website Now, this is where it gets interesting. So Pierre Lemieux was also a leadership candidate in 2017, very prominent social conservative MP. He was appealing to social conservatives when he ran for the leadership. He didn't do too, too well. He came in seventh out of the 13 or 14 candidates with 7.6 something percent of the points in the race. But nonetheless, a significant member of Stephen Harper's conservative government, of the conservative movement in Canada, and now persona non grata as a candidate. Here's what happened. The party cited the rules, and the party is accurate to point to the rule that they were using to justify denying Pierre Lemieux the right to run. A spokesperson said to me in an email, in accordance with our nomination rules, an applicant must not have been an unsuccessful candidate in both of the two prior federal general elections. And if you look at the nomination rules, that's out. That's valid. You can't lose two times in a row and then run a third time. So Pierre Lemieux, he lost in 2015. He ran again in 2019, was also unsuccessful. And now he wanted a third kick at the can. 
Here's the thing, though. The rules also allow a candidate to get a waiver which at the risk of getting too in the weeds on this, basically allows the party to say, you know what, we're going to let you run again anyway. And the reasons they would do this would be, for example, in the case of someone like Pierre Lemieux, who's a former three-time MP, someone who has name recognition, who has an organization, and someone who could bring that riding back into play. Glengarry Prescott Russell had not been conservative for 60 years when he won with a margin of just over 200 votes in 2006, and then he increased that margin over the next two elections by the thousands. So for all the people saying, well, rules are rules, just take a look at Richmond Hill. When another former MP, Costas Menegakis, who lost in 2015, lost again in 2019, is somehow magically on the ballot in 2021. One can only assume that he received this waiver, which Pierre Lemieux was denied. So it's not even like the rule is being evenly enforced in the same election in the exact same circumstances. A candidate that was an MP in the Harper years lost in 2015 and 2019 and wants to run again. They're saying yes to Costas Menegakis and no to Pierre Lemieux. And I don't know the reason that line I shared from the Conservative Party of Canada is the only official corroboration I've gotten. He, uh, he is a social conservative. A lot of people are getting very frustrated with what they feel as a social conservative purge. There have been a number of candidates, a number of candidates going back months that I've spoken to who have not been allowed to run because of their social conservatism. You had also this week a very popular candidate in Yukon, a seat that could be in play for the Conservatives, Jonas Smith, disqualified after he was given the nomination. So he, he was the nominee. He was acclaimed, I think, a couple of months ago. And now the party has scrapped it. And the rationale in an email they gave is for unwillingness to support public health guidelines unwillingness to support public health guidelines. Now, Jonas Smith says this is because he's against mandatory vaccinations in workplaces. He's against vaccine passports. Basically, he's against the coercive measures that a lot of people are pushing when it comes to vaccination. And the Conservative Party has said, yeah, your unwillingness to support public health measures means you don't get to be a candidate in the Conservative Party. Now, I haven't heard the Conservative Party's side of the story here. It could be there's more to it. But the reality is stuff like this does not reflect well on a party that wants to be viewed as a serious alternative to Justin Trudeau's government. And whenever I talk about stories like this, I always get response from, I mean, I get two camps. I get PPC people that say, well, are you surprised? The Conservatives are corrupt. And then I get Conservatives who know it's wrong who know it's wrong, who say, yeah, yeah, I mean, but again, do you want to give Trudeau a win? We can't air our dirty laundry. I don't have a team. I'm here to support the facts. I'm here to support truth, and I'm here to speak out on issues that matter. And if conservatives don't like the dirty laundry being aired, stop dirtying so much laundry. Stop treating people that have been longtime stalwarts of the conservative party and the conservative movement like this because you don't just alienate them. You alienate all of the people who go along with them, who've supported them, who now say, well, I guess if there's no place in the party for Derek Sloan or Jonas Smith or for Pierre Lemieux, I guess there's no place in the party for me. 
and eventually you start chipping away more and more at your coalition and you don't have volunteers left, you don't have donors left, and at a certain point you don't even have voters left. So I know the mainstream media is certainly going to be covering conservative infighting. They love doing it. But I'm not going to avoid pointing out these things because I don't think the Conservative Party should be allowed to make these sorts of decisions with impunity. If we're going to play the well rules or rules card and we don't allow people with two subsequent defeats to run again, great. Enforce that evenly. But when you start picking and choosing who it is that rule applies to, it becomes very easy for people to start raising questions about whether you are only using it as an excuse to get rid of someone who you actually oppose for other reasons. These are not the issues that matter to Canadians. I don't think the average Canadian will care about what the Conservatives do to Pierre Lemieux or to Jonas Smith or whatnot, but they do care about integrity. And if a party is so focused on this, it's not focused on the issues that matter. And just look at what's happening, and not that we want to talk provincial politics with so much happening federally, but in Simcoe Gray, a, a former MP, Stella Ambler, who represented, I think it was Mississauga Streetsville, if memory serves, although I might be wrong about that, from 2011 to 2015. She ran in 2015 and again in 2019 and was unsuccessful. She's seeking the Ontario PC nomination in Simcoe Gray, where she's now relocated, a relatively safe seat for the Ontario Progressive Conservatives. She had been doing the hard work, selling memberships, and was approved as a nomination candidate. And then the party decided, up, oh, we're not having a nomination anymore. We're going to we're going to appoint someone." And she's now suing the party. I've seen the application. I don't know if she's going to get what she wants in terms of having that appointment overturned. But the reality is stuff like this is entirely avoidable if political parties stop behaving in the way they're behaving. These things are avoidable, but we shouldn't be feeling or coerced into not talking about them because of political tribalism, which is what a lot of people want. So I would say, yeah, let, let's get the conservatives to quit with this nonsense and talk about China, talk about free speech, talk about debt, talk about all of these issues that should be the formative and decisive issues of the 2021 election campaign. Elections are often won or lost based on things that don't matter or based on things that barely scratch the surface of what it is that Canadians are dealing with. And that's actually my hope. I don't know if I'm optimistic, but I'm still hopeful. I have hope that this election could be an election about things that matter. Not the Seinfeld election, the, the election about nothing, but an election about key issues. And here's why I'm a little bit hopeful of this. The pandemic has raised the stakes. Whatever you think about COVID, about lockdowns, about restrictions, it's raised the stakes. We had, what, $315 billion deficit posted in the last fiscal year. We have deficits up until 2070, according to the parliamentary budget officer, which means no party. No party, no matter how much uh, they are filled with fiscal hawks, can come in and say we're going to balance the budget in our next term. It's just not possible. Now, this 2070 projection is terrifying for Canadians. We're talking about trillions of dollars of debt. And even if you are a socialist, even if you're like an NDPer, and we'll talk about their platform momentarily, there should be an objection to this. 
I mean, I know they don't understand economics, socialists, but there should be an objection because the more you have to spend on servicing and maintaining your debt, the less you can spend on all of these pie-in-the-sky nationalized programs that you're pushing forward. So left or right should be taking issue with no end in sight for this fiscal hardship that Canada is facing. And here's the thing. I do not fault the Liberal government as much for spending a lot of money during the pandemic. Pretty much every country in the world, every OECD country, every G20 country was dealing with major deficits. I I could take issue with individual programs and expenditures, but there were going to be tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in a deficit no matter what. That I think we can not give a pass for, but we can understand. Here's the problem. When the economy was pretty good, and Trudeau got pretty good books from Stephen Harper when he took over in 2015, he said, well, things are good in Canada right now. We can afford to spend. So they started putting billions into infrastructure, racking up deficits, and that little itty-bitty deficit, so small that you could barely see it, quickly became larger and larger. So we had eliminated any buffer we would have had for economic hardship, which was certainly delivered throughout the course of the pandemic. And you still have a liberal government that's planning these major big big ticket items like universal pharmacare, a $30 billion childcare program, a gun buyback that's going to cost billions more than is being anticipated, and so on and so forth. And all of this is to say that we don't have a buffer. They're still wanting to spend more and more. So this this 2070 projection from the PBO is not something you can just blame on COVID. Justin Trudeau is going to say it is. He's going to say, well, this is all about the pandemic and we had to look out for Canadians and give them money and, and let them do all this. But that is not an accurate representation of where that money's coming from. And the PBO even says it. They've incorporated a lot of liberal commitments to this. So everything the Liberal government says it's going to do for you or to you in its platform is another expenditure that's going to further and further even the faint hope of a balanced budget, which matters. And Canadians need to start caring more about debt and deficit, even though they may be boring issues, because we're getting to a point where it's beyond caricature. And the effect is going to be significant beyond what can be described. And then we have China. I mean, as much as the COVID crisis revealed a lot of economic woes, it also revealed the global policy woes that Canada has that I delved into on the show on Wednesday. I don't want to rehash all of that here, except to say that China matters. And even people that don't care about foreign policy as much need to understand China is a threat on economic grounds, on security grounds, on public health grounds. When, you know, COVID-21, COVID-22, COVID-23 are being cooked up in the lab, that matters. And China's handling and negligence around these things matters. And just as an interesting aside, I've said that Aaron O'Toole, whatever my frustrations are with, you know, how he treats Pierre Lemieux, he's been solid on China. And just this week, the conservatives have sought intervener status in the Winnipeg lab case. This is the case of the two scientists, uh, Zhang Gu Qiu and Kei Ding Chang, who worked at the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg, 
were escorted out by RCMP, then earlier this year fired, and the Liberal government's refusing to hand over any of the documents connected to this. Uh, this is something that the Speaker of the House has actually taken to court. And the Conservatives want intervener status. They want to be able to make a filing. It's unclear whether this is going to happen in the course of the election. But as leader of the official opposition, which he still is for the next couple of days, Aaron O'Toole is basically saying, I want to be able to go before this because there is a, a role that Parliament is meant to play in the oversight of documents. And the contempt, literal and legal, the contempt in which the Liberal government is holding Parliament is actually an illegal matter. So I think Aaron O'Toole has every right to intervene. But again, why can he not be the tough guy on other issues? And that's the whole point. Still, the Conservatives are claiming they don't want an election. The NDP <laughs> claiming they don't want an election, but all of a sudden they release a full platform. Not a good platform, but a full platform for this election. They say, oh, no one's ready for, we can't have, we don't want. And I, I want to look at this in a little bit of detail because some of it is just the usual stuff from the NDP. But there are some very weird things here. For starters, it's not costed. It's not costed. So when I mentioned that people on the left should be concerned about rising debt and rising deficits, the NDP is not. So all of these expenditures, all of these line items, they have no way of paying for. And I, they've got to know that. I just don't think they want Canadians to know it. But then they resort to like the only thing they know how to do, which is talk about the super rich. This is from one page calling for a new deal for tax fairness. The COVID-19 pandemic has driven inequalities even deeper. While millions of families and small businesses have been pushed to the brink during the pandemic, the super rich are doing better than ever. Canadian billionaires are $78 billion richer since the first lockdown in 2020 and counting. They're making big money while people suffer. The NDP platform says that those who have profited off of the pandemic should pay for the recovery. They want the wealthiest to pay their share. So if you've already started a drinking game, I believe you need to take a shot every time you hear pay their, pay their share. So I hope you're not listening to this too early because I feel you're going to be taking a lot of shots. They want new, fair, and progressive taxation. Uh, they're going to put a 15% tax on large corporate windfall profits during the pandemic. They're going to go after large corporations that took publicly funded wage subsidies and gave executive bonuses. That's actually, I, I think, a reasonable enough policy. And then they're going to also uh, boost the top tax rate, put a luxury goods tax on yachts and private jets. That's another uh, take a drink moment there and ask that the multimillionaires pay a bit more towards shared services with a wealth tax. Okay, there's a lot going on there, but tax the rich, tax the rich, make them pay their fair share, yachts and private jets. This is standard NDP fare for, the, for a lot of it, but it's devoid of economic knowledge. The NDP's platform is blaming the so-called super-rich, for the economic harm that was unleashed on average families and businesses during the pandemic. And it's true, people like Jeff Bezos and the Waltons did very well during the pandemic. But that's because of the lockdowns. Because all of these lockdowns were telling the mom and pop shops they had to close down. Meanwhile, Amazon became the primary grocery vendor supplier for all of these goods and services that were declared non-essential by lockdown happy governments. By including a lot of NDP voices that were calling for more and more lockdowns. 
So yeah, it's unfair that all of these people got wealthy because their businesses were the only ones allowed to stay open. But that's not a reflection of any sort of government economic situation. That's a reflection of how much lockdowns harmed small and medium-sized businesses, how much lockdowns harmed families. And the platform even concedes that, yes, there was a, a, an effect in the lockdown of these people getting richer, but it doesn't make that leap that is so necessary, which is to put the blame for that gap on government intervention and put that blame on lockdowns themselves. And yeah, I mean, when you look at, like, you see this all the time. If you look at some NDP Twitter accounts, they'll say outlaw billionaires. They say these words that I don't even think they know what they mean, but they sound nice. And people look at Jeff Bezos going to space and think, well, that's not fair. Why should he get to go to space when I've had to shut down my restaurant or shut down my hair salon? Well, Jeff Bezos may have a lot of issues that you could take aim with, and I would encourage you to do that. But he is not the reason that businesses are suffering. And politicians have a great tendency to scapegoat things that they should shoulder the blame for onto the so-called super rich. I shouldn't say so. I mean, they are super rich. But I, I just don't like the, the, the moral judgment in that term. But governments and politicians and people like Jagmeet Singh and the NDP here are blaming the wealthy for what it's actually politicians that have to shoulder. And even though the NDP has not been in power, the NDP has basically endorsed the Justin Trudeau permanent emergency mentality in Parliament and provincial NDP in Ontario and Alberta and elsewhere have also pushed for more and more of these restrictions that have allowed this uh, gap that they take such aim with in this platform to get as large as it has over the last 16 months. Before we take a break here, I want to talk about a great new book from our friends over at secondstreet.org, Life After COVID. Yes, elections give lots of news on the day-to-day, -day, but we can't lose sight of the bigger picture and the longer-term questions, like what can be done about rising government debt, about long healthcare waiting lists, about unemployment, about all of these things that have to be confronted by the country in the Life After COVID, hence the name of the book. You can get this free ebook by heading over to secondstreet.org that's life after covid at secondstreet.org we'll be back in a moment you're tuned in to the andrew lawton show welcome back to the andrew lawton show the cultural battle on mandatory vaccines and vaccine passports is ramping up significantly. And I actually wanted to address a couple of key parts of this that I feel were causing some confusion. Because on one hand, we had Justin Trudeau a few months back saying that vaccine passports are divisive and he wouldn't go anywhere near them. And then on the other hand, you had just last week, Justin Trudeau talking about mandating mandatory vaccines for federally regulated workers. And now you have the immigration minister, Marco Mendicino, announcing that the federal government is putting the finishing touches on its vaccine passport for international travel. Now, there are two parts of this discussion. There's the domestic vaccine passport, and then there's the international vaccine passport. And while the two are different, I think they're part of the same overarching discussion here. But I want to do a little bit of I told you so first, because months ago, I got a lot of backlash from people when I said vaccine passports are inevitable. People said, well, no, you're wrong. We can fight them. I said, no, they're coming whether you like it or not. 
And one of the reasons for this is that every country, I believe, has a right to secure its own borders. Every country has the right to limit entry, which means that if uh, Italy or the Maldives or India say, you know what, we want to make sure everyone's vaccinated before they come here, they have a right to do that. If the people of those countries want to oppose the policy, they can. But Canadians have a right to travel. And that doesn't mean Canadians have a right to go into an individual country, but Canadians have the right to try. So if India says we need proof of vaccination or Italy says we need proof of vaccination or the Maldives, I plucked these countries out pretty randomly, then Canadians should not be excluded, which they would be if their government doesn't play ball. So in, in that way, the government has to respond to this because otherwise Canadians are going to have parts of the world closed off to them. The issue is that a federal vaccine passport will no doubt be used at a local or provincial level, even if provinces are not pursuing them. Jason Kenney has said heck no to issuing Alberta vaccine passports. He's also said that he doesn't want to even recognize them in a domestic context, although he's saying that obviously Albertans can use them for international travel. What this means is that the existence of a federal vaccine passport could very easily be used by some business in Alberta that says, yeah, you know what? I, I want proof of vaccination if you want to come here, if you want to dine at this restaurant, go to this gym. And now that there exists a government-issued card, it's basically an end run around the provinces. So now we can have a national vaccine passport rather than simply a federal vaccine passport. And that's the danger of this. Now, if you believe, as I do, that businesses should have the right to make these determinations for themselves, just as individuals have the right to go elsewhere, you may say, what's the big deal? The point is, Justin Trudeau has to own this because he said a few months back that, no, this is a provincial responsibility, not the federal uh, government's job. And now he's facilitating what I think is, is fair to call that end run around provinces to have a, a national vaccine passport, even if on the surface, the point of it is simply to facilitate international travel. It's downright creepy the direction that some of the activists are taking this. Let's just look at Quebec for a moment. Quebec will ban unvaccinated people from non-essential public places. So Quebec's doing the France thing, where if you want to go to a gym, if you want to go to a restaurant, you will have to be vaccinated, and that means that you're going to have to scan that code, a digital vaccine passport, on a smartphone app for validation, which means that if you want to do anything that comes along with living in a supposedly free society, you have to disclose your vaccination status to the barista, to the bartender, to the host at the restaurant, to the concert ticket taker. Terrifying stuff, this stratification of society along the lines of vaccination. This was imposed without any debate whatsoever. And the reason for it, Francois Legault said, is that if you have debate on vaccine passports, it would expose Quebecers to conspiracy theories. This is, this, I, I, you can't even make this stuff up. So what Francois Legault said is, uh, debate's not needed. It's a health order. We're putting it into effect on September 1st. He says, I don't want certain people to come explain that there's a conspiracy, that it's not good to be vaccinated, that in the end we're putting a microchip in people's arms to follow what they're doing, stories like that. I don't think we need that in Quebec. 
So he doesn't want to open up a debate or committee hearings because he's claiming, oh, someone crazy will just come and say crazy things and, and Quebecers will hear it. Yeah, crazy things like if the Quebec government has a vaccine passport, people will have to disclose their vaccination status before going into a restaurant. That would be crazy. That would be a conspiracy. What's that? Oh, that's actually the policy. Oh, my bad. Okay. Yeah, so, so it's, they, they're not concerned about microchipping in the arms conspiracy theories. They're concerned about backlash based on the factual nature of the program. They don't want people to tell them no, because I think they know that they're in the minority on this, but they have to cling to this power. So all of these governments that are doing things like this are playing into what is not going to go away. They, you don't abandon infrastructure quickly. So all of these governments that are investing millions of dollars into developing these apps, these programs, these regimes, they're going to want to get their money's worth out of them, which means that there's not going to be a, a flip uh, of the switch on December 31st at the end of the year where, okay, no longer do we need to disclose all this. Once you have these apps, it's okay, well, maybe we work the flu shot into it. Maybe we work the next uh, coronavirus into it. Maybe we work all of these other things into it. And before you know it, it becomes not this temporary fleeting measure, but a part of day-to-day -day life, the new normal. And interestingly enough, I, I may be wrong because I haven't read all of the French language coverage on this, but I've not even seen any reference to this as being a temporary measure. Some people might say, oh, well, it's implied, it's temporary, you're not going to need it after the pandemic. But I've not seen governments say that. I've not seen a government build a sunset clause into this. If I were them, I would, you know, put like a ticking time bomb literally on the server they use to run the app that says, well, I wouldn't have the app in the first place. But if I were going to, I would put a time bomb on it that says, yeah, on uh, December 31st at uh, whatever time, uh, this thing is going to blow up and we lose the app. We lose everything. We can never run it again because that's the only way. And even then, I mean, the backups could be stored somewhere. You never know. But, but facetiously speaking, we know that they need to be told this cannot be the new norm. And no one's telling them that. That's why they don't want the debate on this. That's why they don't want to have a discussion about this, because they know they're going to be on the losing side of that discussion. Just look at how they've tried to shrink the bounds of debate. I mentioned earlier that candidate in Yukon for the Conservatives turfed because of his opposition to vaccine passports. Now you have in Quebec, not just the decision to impose a vaccine passport, but the refusal to allow people to discuss it. So what the Quebec government is effectively saying here is that there is only one correct state-approved position to have on this issue, which is why I get so passionate when we're talking about free speech. It's why I've said that free speech is the conduit to any other issue, because if you can't speak freely, you can't debate the other issues, and all of a sudden you can't debate anything. So Quebec is taking aim at your personal mobility if you're an unvaccinated person or even a vaccinated person who doesn't want to have to beg for permission to go and grab a, a cup of coffee at a bistro or something. And moreover, they have this other attack on free speech where you can't even engage or debate it. You have to just accept it and go along with it because the government tells you so. I don't know if you remember going back to, I don't know, what was it, April 2020, maybe May 2020, when we were being warned of the second wave. 
and then it became the third wave. And now Theresa Tam, the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada, has said, we are in the midst of the fourth wave. And if you think that's the last one, I'm pretty sure in about uh, two months' time, when we get close to Christmas, we'll be hearing about the fifth wave, the sixth wave, the seventh wave. Uh, basically, it's like the Hanukkah menorah, where, you know, you had just a little bit of oil and it just let the candle burn for eight whole waves. That's the... Uh, the best way I can think of to describe this here. So however many waves there are going to be, it's never going to be a wave that dissipates, which is why we need to resist any attempts to bring us into the realm of the new normal. And it's why Alberta's position, I think, is laudable here by saying we are simply not going to allow this federal government credential for international travel to be used in a domestic context. Now, how much they can enforce that, I don't know, but they need to advance on that and, and move beyond just making that a rhetorical position. Look at the Globe and Mail's editorial board. Yes to vaccine mandates. Yes to vaccine passports. This is a media outlet that is content with segregating and stratifying society, just like some of these other companies that are basically firing people if they don't go along with it. I was originally tracking individual universities in Canada that were coming out with vaccine mandates for students and staff. I, I stopped counting this week. There was a wave of them. I, I'm pretty sure there's some collusion taking place of most, if not all, Ontario universities coming out in the last 48 hours and saying that they're requiring vaccinations from students. It, you know, everyone, it started with Waterloo, and now we're looking at University of Toronto, Western, University of Ottawa, York University. I mean, pretty much every Ontario university is now mandating vaccination for its students. And if you have an exemption, the concession they offer you is, you know, we'll, you know, come to your come to your bedroom in the middle of the night and we'll, uh, you know, give you like three COVID tests and, you know, two on your way to your car and one in the drive through when you're getting your coffee and, you know, every five minutes in class. Not, not necessarily that bad, but pretty close. It, it's nonstop testing. So they're basically trying to make your life so miserable that you're just going to get the shot or drop out anyway. That's what they want. If you're not vaccinated, they just don't want you there. The Globe and Mail, if you don't want to get vaccinated for whatever reason, they just don't think you have a part in society. Quebec government, you should not have the right to go and get a coffee. You shouldn't have the right to go to a concert. All of these things. And I'm not convinced, and here's what I would like to see some polling on, that what they're banking on is truly accurate, which is that everyone who's vaccinated supports mandatory vaccination. Because I've always said I'm pro-vaccine, but I'm pro-vaccine choice as well. People make decisions for themselves. You shouldn't have to tell everyone. I was trying to go, where was it? I was trying to go to a mall a couple of weeks ago, which in and of itself is an odd thing for me. And they asked me at the checking counter, you know, that the standard screening questions of, you know, have you been out of the country? Have you done this? And are you vaccinated? And I said, why does it matter? D does it affect my ability to go in? They're like, well, no, we're just asking. I'm like, well, none of your business. And I carried on and got whatever it was I needed at the mall. I needed to go there. I, like, I try not to make a point of frequenting malls just for reasons that have nothing to do with the pandemic. But do we want that in society? Originally, when I asked that question months ago, I thought it was rhetorical. But now it's increasingly clear how many people actually do want that. And when we talk about in an electoral context, all the issues that do not matter, never lose sight of the ones that do. Of individual liberty, once you chip away at it, once you allow it to be whittled down to nothing, it's very difficult, if not impossible, 
to get it back. So if any politicians happen to knock on your door in the upcoming election, make sure to ask them where they stand on these key things that matter to your freedoms in this country. We've got to end things there. My thanks to you all. We'll have lots more for you next week as we hit the road for election 2021. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show, The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.